Hello and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. I first met my guest for this episode when I was a student at the University of Victoria, which was a long time ago, and I was registered for an ethno-ecology class in the Environmental Studies Department. Now, if you're not sure who I'm talking about, here she is to introduce herself. My name is Nancy Turner. I'm a botanist and ethnobotanist. Uh, that is someone who's interested in the relationship between people and plants. And I've had the privilege of living and working in this part of Canada and in, uh, on Vancouver Island and in British Columbia for, well, since I was five years old when we moved here. I, since I was in my late teens, I started working with and learning from Indigenous elders, knowledge holders about plants. And I've continued that work and that learning journey over many decades now, over 50 years, and have done my very best to learn accurately and to to work with elders and knowledge holders to promote their knowledge and to make sure that it doesn't get lost to future generations. Nancy Turner co-wrote Lushim's Plants, Traditional Indigenous Foods, Materials and Medicines with Dr. Lushim Arvid Charlie. Lushim's Plants is a finalist for the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize and the 2022 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. In our conversation, Nancy talks about what drew her to ethnobotany and why we need books like Lushim's Plants. Nancy starts our conversation with a reading from Lushim's Plants. I'm going to start by reading from the introduction of the book. Lushim, Dr. Arvid Charlie, is a respected elder and botanical expert of Cowichan tribes and a fluent speaker of his whole Kometnam language. His knowledge of plants is truly remarkable and comes from deep training and experience starting in his earliest childhood years. He learned this knowledge from his great-grandfather Luschim, whose name he inherited, his great-grandmother and others of their generation who grew up in the last decades of the 19th century. And then I go on to describe how I came to know Luz Chim back in 1999 when I uh, was w- uh, helping to lead a workshop for the Cowichan tribes, and Luz Chim was as well. We met each other and realized right away that we had both had a strong affinity for plants, and I realized also the depth of his knowledge. And at that point, we decided to work together to create this book. So it's been decades in the making with many, many times that we've spent together out on the land and in his home and just my learning from him, his experiences, um, watching him as he prepared different plants. And it's just been a remarkable learning journey for me. So I'll, I'll just read a little bit more about Luschim. Luschim was born in Kwamichan 
one of the villages of the Cowichan Nation in 1942. His mother, Violet, passed away in December 2016. His father, the famous carver and artist Simon Charlie, passed away in May 2005 at the age of 85. Luzchim, his namesake great-grandfather, who was born in 1870, lived until Arvid was about six years old and had a big influence on his life, teaching him about plants and medicines even at the tender age of three to four years old. Even as a boy, Arvid was a hunter and fisher, contributing to his family's meals and provisions. His formal Western education ended in grade eight. And then uh, a little further on, on June 5th, 2007, Lustim received an honorary Doctor of Letters degree at Malaspina University College, now Vancouver Island University. In recognition of his tremendous contributions to the teaching of Coast Salish culture and traditions, as well as his commitment to environmental sustainability and to preserving the Hokumitnam language. Luzchim is a special and unique man. Not only does he hold exceptional knowledge about the plants, language, culture, and environments of the Cowichan people, but he is a kind, generous, and distinguished teacher and elder who has learned what he knows from primary knowledge holders of past generations and through extended time spent on the ocean, rivers, and lakes, and in the forests, prairies, and woodlands of his home place. He's committed to passing on this knowledge in a good way for the benefit of all of us, but especially of his people. With his teachings and his vision, he is an inspiration to so many. He holds to the message passed on to him by his elders, quote, learning never comes to an end. Keep expanding your knowledge in all areas. Do all the things you want to do when you are able and comfortable, but don't ignore or neglect your families in the process. And that's from his speech when he received his honorary degree. So it's been such a privilege for me to have spent this time with Luz Chim and to have learned from him and to help uh, support his wish to pass his knowledge along to the next generations to come. And did you want to read a little bit from the section on the yew trees too, Nancy? Yes. Thank you, Megan. Yes. We we recorded our interviews over the years. So I have a lot of firsthand uh, words from Liz Cheem. And we tried to include those in the book because it's far better for uh, to, to be able to use Liz Cheem's own words. So I thought I would just share his description about the yew tree, and, and it shows the depth of his knowledge. Tohua self, it means bow tree in the Hokumitnam language. It's the yew tree, Tohua very strong wood. It's better when treated. As I mentioned earlier about kam, that's the kelp. If Tohua is too dry, it gets too brittle, especially the heartwood. The sap is more flexible, more resin or whatever it is. The wood is used for tools. In some cases, you'd want it very hard, in which case you'd burn it in a hot fire. But if you wanted it springy, you'd do it a different way. You'd treat it with herbs. So it's different. If you want it very hard or you want it flexible, you'd treat it accordingly. And the bark is a good medicine. 
that's some in the box up there. Some of the medicines I always keep handy. Some of the bark, some use it, use the needles, some ask for needles, both needles and bark over the years. Over my lifetime, I've seen tuhuatsok, young trees, meaning a foot or so diameter, die off. It's my observation that when it gets too much canopy over them, they will slowly die away. So in my harvesting, I started to cut the lower branches of those trees to see if they'd perk up, and they did. So if you travel to Tsuhalem and some places where I've been, you'll see some of the limbs cut off. You'll see them growing better. And where another one not too far away has just died away. So I've experimented with them in that way. The yew tree, that's the tree and the bow. That's a bow and arrow. So the bow is tukwats, the actual bow, the bow and arrow. And since the bow is made from that tree, the tree is called tukwatsalk. Also used for medicine, the bark or bark and needles. Usually you'll get it from the morning or day side of the tree. That's where the sun hits in the early part of the morning. And that's from an interview on December 16th, 2010. Thank you. If you could read one book or watch one TV show for the rest of oh. your life, what would it be and why? Ah, uh, <laughs> I almost anticipated that question. Um, <laughs> I would, I would love to have and read and continue reading Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. Um, I read it when it first came out in 2013. And for those of you who don't know her, Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer is a botanist who specializes in mosses, among many other things, a teacher and a professor, and a member of the um, Potawatomi Indigenous Group in Eastern North America, the citizen Potawatomi. And so she has uh, roots in both her indigenous culture and in Western botanical science. And in the book Braiding Sweetgrass, she brings together those strands of Western botanical knowledge, indigenous botanical knowledge, and knowledge of the plants themselves, and creates this beautiful story and learning experience that uh I know her personally, so I know her voice, but friends who have listened to her read her book have told me that's an experience in itself as well. Yeah, I I just bought, actually, it's funny that you mention her because I just uh, bought Gathering Moss recently and I'm oh. looking forward to reading that book. <laughs> You'll enjoy that too. Yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit more about your book. So I would love to hear a bit about what led you to become an ethnobotanist and to become interested in that study in particular. Thank you for that question. Ever since I was a little kid, and I mentioned we moved from Montana when I was five, but uh, before that, I lived back to my earliest memories of being two or three years old, I've always been interested in plants. I, My sister and I would wander around the ponderosa pine aspen woods in above Missoula, and I just grew to love all the plants. I can remember them all, even though we moved away when I was young. So growing up, 
I retained that knowledge, that interest in natural history in general. My father and grandfather were entomologists, but just grew closer and closer to to re- realize my interest in plants. And by the time I was maybe 12, 13, I heard about this field called ethnobotany. And that was exactly what I was interested in. I was always making dyes out of berries and other plants and, you know, feeding my friends dandelion salad and all of these things. And so um, when I was in high school, I discovered two books um, and I, I learned about them. One was Erna Gunther's Ethnobotany of Western Washington, and one was uh, based on James Tate's work by Elsie Seedman, The Ethnobotany of the Thompson Indians of uh, British Columbia. And so I realized this is a legitimate field of study. And so from the time I was in high school, I believe it's in my high school yearbook, says I wanted to be an ethnobotanist. And um, I went, I, I, Went to UVic as an undergraduate. I worked in the herbarium with Dr. Mark Bell and uh, and many others and started taking courses to prepare myself to study ethnobotany. And I actually did my honors thesis working under Mark Bell's guidance on the ethnobotany of the Coast Salish of Vancouver Island. So my interest and I met uh, through the my linguistics friends, uh, a number of elders. And when I was in anthropology in third year, we had a talk from Chief Philip Paul from the Tsartlip Nation. I was totally blown away by that talk as, as a third year student because he talked about the residential school. He talked about colonialism. He talked about all of these things that I had no notion of or understanding of at all and it it opened a a door to a realization of what had happened anyways when I came to start my honors thesis I got up my nerve and I actually phoned Chief Paul and I asked him if there was anyone in his uh, community there in, in the Saanich Nations who might be willing to work with me and teach me about plants. And I still remember him saying, oh, so you want to learn all our secrets, do you? <laughs> and I I said, oh, no. And then he laughed. He was teasing me. And that's a good sign to be teased. And anyway, he introduced me to his father, Christopher Paul, who lived out at Sartlip and uh And Christopher was willing to work with me. And every Tuesday afternoon, I would go out to visit him with an armload of plants. And uh, he would tell me about them. And he also grew camas in his garden. And he he was very familiar with a lot of plants. And his mother was Cowichan as well. So he also knew the Cowichan names. I also worked with uh, Richard and Maud Harry and some other elders from from those days back in the, well, in the late 60s. And so that's where I got my start and my interest going all that way back. So it, it was such a thrill to be able to work with Liz Cheem, uh, someone who also had roots in deep back in the generations, and to continue to learn from him. Yeah. 
what was it like to work on this book, Nancy? Because like you said, it was kind of a 10-year process, which is a long time to work on a book. And I can only imagine the the knowledge and all the experiences you had to include in this, but it's not a big book. I mean, it's so rich with information, but it's not a, a large book. Um, how did you narrow down what to include? And, and was that something you worked on with Lushim to make sure it was, it captured everything accurately? Yes. I mean, everything that uh, I, I kind of put the book together, but as you can tell, Luschim is a huge part of it. He is the main part of it. And it's his words and his knowledge that we're featuring. But it's it is focused on his knowledge. So there there are lots of knowledge holders in the Cowichan area, Hokumatnam speaking peoples and in related communities. And at first I was thinking, oh, we would make it broader and cover the Cowichan, all of the Cowichan tribes in this book, but realized that, no, this is this, this is really about the knowledge of one individual who had the special background in history that enabled him to, to learn about and to experience these plants for, and its firsthand knowledge and so that's that's why the book might seem fairly focused because it is focused on the knowledge of Luschim, and and uh, we didn't try to include there's other information about medicines or other people's stories and experiences, but we just decided to focus on this on on his knowledge for this book. Yeah. It's interesting, and I grew up with my dad hiking around Wasanich lands, and we always had that book, um, what is it, Plants of the Pacific Northwest, the BC, Oregon, and Washington one. And uh, when I was recently reading um, Field Notes by Helen Humphreys, which is about her year in, in, in an herbarium in Ontario, she comments on how often like plant identification it doesn't connect it to the land and the people who used it it's a very colonial look at things and and i wondered what you think of that and how we need to change how we see plants and their relationship to the land and to people yeah absolutely um the herbarium specimens, and, and I worked in the herbarium for a number of years and am very familiar with a lot of herbaria and recognize their incredible value as records of uh, plant distributions and uh, plant taxonomy and so forth. But you're right, um, very seldom do the herbarium specimens reflect or capture or have any annotations about uh, the details of indigenous people's knowledge of the not only just of the plants and their uses but their their names and their the way indigenous people categorize them or classify them which is different sometimes from the way botanists uh, see plants and so that's, I mean, it would be very difficult, I suppose, to record that information um, for most taxonomists who don't have the opportunity to to work with and learn from Indigenous peoples. But I think 
the first step in that is to recognize the huge gap that exists in herbarium collections and find examples where um, where people have taken that extra effort to to record information. John Davidson, for example, a botanist who used to be called Botany John, worked a lot with Ntlkatmuch and other indigenous peoples and um, and even with James Tate and was able to record some information uh, on, on his collections from First Nations. But in terms of the names, there are about 50 different languages and major dialects spoken by indigenous peoples from, say, central Alaska down to the Columbia River and east to the Rockies. 50 different names uh, for for the same plants. And just looking at those names alone gives you an understanding not only of the richness of people's relationships with those plants, but also how knowledge has been shared and spread across languages, across geographic areas, and how plants have been traded from one area to another. All of that is really important in our study of plant taxonomy, and many of us really don't don't recognize that um, the way uh, where plants grow today uh, is is in some cases at least influenced by the people uh, around those plants and people themselves moving plants from one place to another. Yeah. Um, I've I've talked to people about the book recently, and a lot of people have said they've been putting it in their backpacks when they go out into the woods with their kids and look up the plants. And and I wondered why you think books like this are important in shaping our relationship with the land today and what they bring to our experience of being out in in the forest and and other spaces. Well, they they add a whole dimension, I guess, to our experiences. And as someone who grew up with books in my backpack (laughs) and books in my back pocket (laughs) um, and how recognizing how much I learned from those books. And, you know, if you, if you're just starting out and it's like the books help you to make friends with the plants, I guess. You read about them, you learn a little bit about them, you see them growing out there, and all of a sudden they're they're part of your circle of friends. I guess that's how I put it and uh you can do that by going out with people who know about the plants and learning from them and I did a lot of that growing up too. I belonged to the Junior Natural History Society in Victoria with Freeman King. And I went out with Miss Melbourne and Miss Lemon and a bunch of people from the Victoria Natural History Society who found that I really love plants and they would introduce me to books about them, but also take me out and show me the mosses and, and plants that I wasn't familiar with. So it's just the books are just one other way of getting to know plants and learning from other people about them, learning from people who studied them and spent a lot of time with them. And so it increases your enjoyment of your experience getting to know the plants, just as it would increase your enjoyment of getting to know 
new people and making new friends by learning more about them. Yeah. How have uh, Lushim's teachings impacted your relationship with the land and plants? Well, whenever I go out, um, I think of Lushim a lot. And I think of the, the plants that he's told me about. And I think of his growing up and his ancestors and what it must have been like for them, you know, a thousand years ago in this place. He really is, to me, he's like a, I don't know, a hand reaching back into the past. And that makes, that enriches my experiences tremendously. Yeah. And he, the two of you together working on this book have have shared these teachings now with readers. And and why do we need these teachings now? What what can we learn that from these this book and his words? I think more than ever before, we need to come collectively to an understanding of the impacts that we're having as people on the earth. And and part of that those impacts, I think, are what I call homogenizing the world. We're bringing plants from Europe, grasses and invasive species of different kinds for various reasons. We're introducing them to Canada, to Australia, to, I mean, other parts of the world, uh, New Zealand. And in doing so, those species that come from other places are replacing some of the species that grow here naturally. And also another aspect of, of learning from people like Luschim is to recognize that local, locally living people, indigenous peoples around the world who have lived in one place for generations have learned how to care for those places. And that's what all of us need to learn how to do. We need to get to familiar with wherever we're living and make that truly our home by caring for all the, the habitats and the places that are there and the species that are, are originally from that place, making sure that they don't disappear, making sure that they're not totally subsumed by this homogenizing process of urbanization and industrialization of the landscape, over-harvesting and, and uh, damage to the land that, that occurs when we clear-cut log or when we, well, when we plow up the land, when we build our superhighways. All of those things, um, the impacts that that we have, we need to learn about them and we need to reverse that. And there's a lot of wisdom in the knowledge of people like Liz Chim about how to care for those plants and how to treasure and value those local indigenous places and species. Yeah. It's it's always interesting to me because I think like you were sharing in in the reading um about the yew tree with the boughs that had been cut and 
Um, I think there's this idea that that plants were wild before colonization uh. and post colonization it was different, which is of course not true because we know that um, indigenous communities cultivated plants and cared for them so that they could uh, sustain their communities and be used through many seasons and many years. Yes, I think one of the things that I've really learned over time, not just uh, about the plants and their names and so forth, but come to the realization that the first peoples here were not what they call hunter-gatherers. That's such a put-down, and it doesn't at all reflect the sophisticated knowledge that people have about how to look after the the plants and animals the fish and so forth the clams and you know so learning in anthropology about hunter-gatherers I just kind of assumed like everybody did that uh, people were just you know going out and using what was growing there but after learning from many many different elders all the different ways that people looked after the plants everything from the use of fire very careful controlled burns to maintain mosaics of clearings and different successional stages that promoted the growth of berries and camas and so forth. So from burning and clearing uh, to terracing to pruning and coppicing different plants, shrubs, um, scattering seeds and propagules, replanting and transplanting seeds all over um, all of these different methods um, that we're finally in general society starting to come to recognize with, say, the work that's been done with the clam gardens um, and the work that's been done with camas prairies and, and that. We're finally coming to recognize what I think is has been a critically important oversight uh, for so many years about the way the relationships with Indigenous peoples and their lands. That was Nancy Turner. Lushim's Plants is a finalist for the 2022 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize and the 2022 Bill Duthie Booksellers Choice Award. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Ruth Ozeki. Ruth's book, The Book of Form and Emptiness, is a finalist for the 2022 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.